Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. While the siege at Petersburg was happening, Robert E. Lee ordered General Jubal Early to take his Confederate Corps into the Shenandoah Valley in an effort to stir up trouble and try to divert some Union forces away from Petersburg. Early was to attack Union forces that were in the valley, which at the moment were not very many, and if things went well, he was to make an incursion into Maryland, and if things continued to go well, he was to move along the Potomac River to threaten Washington, D.C. itself. Early found that most Union forces had left the Shenandoah Valley when he arrived, and he moved through it without much trouble, and began his incursion into Maryland by July 6th. Along the way to D.C., Early's Confederates extorted money from two towns by threatening to destroy them if they didn't pay up. Hagerstown, from which they got $20,000, and Frederick, from which they got $200,000. This campaign also saw some of the very few examples of Confederate forces invading Union territory and confiscating and destroying civilian wealth and property on a systematic and fairly large scale. On July 9th, 1864, Early's army fought and defeated a numerically smaller Union force at a battle called Monocacy along the way to D.C. That day, Ulysses Grant diverted some of his forces from Petersburg to go reinforce the defenses of D.C. Early made it to D.C.'s outer defenses before those Union reinforcements arrived, but his men were so exhausted from all the marching that they'd been doing that they were simply too exhausted to launch any kind of significant attack on the defenses of D.C. Then, on July 11th, Early heard that two additional corps of Union troops had arrived, and he made a few token attacks against D.C.'s defenses, and then withdrew, successfully evading the Union forces, who were closing in on him from multiple fronts. Abraham Lincoln actually personally observed some of the fighting around a place called Fort Stevens, and he was watching the fighting with bullets whizzing by when a Union captain, a guy who at that time no one knew, who would later become noteworthy in American history, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., called Lincoln a damned fool and told him to get down. Holmes, of course, didn't realize that the tall civilian observer that he was yelling at was, in fact, the president. Early's raid gave some of the Union public and also foreign observers the notion that the Confederacy was still very formidable. Lincoln issued a call for another half million troops for the Union Army, and some prominent Northern Democrats predicted Lincoln's defeat in the November elections. 
And Lincoln himself, for that matter, was very doubtful that he could get reelected. However, those impressions at the time were obviously incorrect, and Early's raid, while it did grab some headlines and attention for a brief while, and while it did cause some amount of diversion of troops away from Petersburg, in the grand scheme of the war, this raid didn't really amount to much other than an interesting story in a temporary diversion. That said, despite what seems obvious from today's perspective, that by 1864, the Confederates had very little chance of winning. Nonetheless, in the summer of 1864, Northern morale was actually not good, and was some of the lowest at any point during the war. And among other symptoms of this, the price of gold was spiking in northern financial markets, which basically meant that a lot of investors were shorting the U.S. government. Grant ordered Union forces to pursue Early's army all the way back to the Shenandoah Valley, and then to not only crush Early's forces, but also, quote, eat out Virginia clear and clean as far as they go so that crows flying over it for the balance of the season will have to carry their provender with them, end quote. Now, the Shenandoah had been serving as a major breadbasket for the Confederacy, and it had also been serving as a corridor for Confederate troops to make invasions into Union states like Maryland and Pennsylvania, and even in the vicinity of D.C. itself. It had also been a hotbed of Confederate partisan activity at times when Union forces had attempted to take control of the valley, and Ulysses Grant was simply determined to put an end to all of those things, to completely neutralize the valley and its value to the Confederate war effort. For this purpose, Grant put General Philip Sheridan, who'd been a cavalry commander before this, in command of all the forces that would be doing the job of pursuing Jubal Early's Confederate army and also of destroying the Shenandoah Valley's value. Sheridan's forces would be known as the Army of the Shenandoah, and Grant told him to pursue Early, quote, to the death, end quote. In addition to that, Grant told Sheridan, quote, do all the damage to railroads and crops you can. Carry off stock of all descriptions and Negroes so as to prevent further planting. If the war is to last another year, we want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. End quote. Sheridan started off cautiously, in part because he'd received intelligence that Early had been reinforced with four more divisions from Lee, though in reality, Early had only gotten about half that many troops of reinforcements, and half of that was soon ordered back when Grant decided to make some offensive moves at Petersburg. When Sheridan received more accurate information about all this, he went on offense against Early's army at Winchester on September 19th. Sheridan's army, at about 37,000 strong, had more than a two-to-one advantage over Early's roughly 15,000-man force. Union cavalry at this battle, who were armed with repeating carbines, made a major contribution to the Union victory, and they captured about 2,000 Confederate soldiers in a successful cavalry charge against infantry, which was something that was not very common in this war. Early pulled what was left of his army back to a defensive position at a place called Fisher's Hill, 20 miles away. 
Sheridan launched a hugely successful attack there on September 22nd, which resulted in over 1,200 Confederate casualties at a cost of only around 500 Union casualties. Early pulled back another 60 miles south to a pass in the Blue Ridge, giving Sheridan a free hand to start wrecking the Shenandoah Valley. Sheridan said of this, quote, The people must be left nothing but their eyes to weep with over the war, end quote. Within two weeks, Sheridan reported that his army had, quote, destroyed over 2,000 barns filled with wheat, hay, and farming implements, over 70 mills filled with flour and wheat, have driven in front of the army over 4,000 head of stock, and have killed and issued to the troops not less than 3,000 sheep, end quote. And in doing all this, Sheridan's forces made no effort whatsoever to distinguish between actual Confederate supporters and partisans on the one hand, and those Valley residents who might have just been trying to stay out of things and mind their own business, or who might even in some cases have been friendly to the Union, on the other hand. When partisans did launch unconventional attacks on his men, Sheridan took it out on the whole population, again, not bothering to make fine distinctions between the guilty and the innocent. In mid-October, Lee sent early an infantry division and a cavalry brigade for reinforcements in an effort to avoid completely losing control of the Shenandoah. On October 16th, Sheridan caught a train to D.C. for a strategy meeting with his superiors, and while he was gone, Jubal Early decided to launch a surprise attack on Union forces at Cedar Creek. This attack was launched at dawn on October 19th, and Early's massive surprise attack at first was very successful. In the short run, anyway, catching the army of the Shenandoah unprepared with the result that they were pushed back several miles and lost over a thousand men taken as prisoners. Then Early's army halted in the abandoned Union camp in order to look for food, and because they were just simply too exhausted and hungry to keep pressing the attack. And Early, for his part, seems to have thought that he'd pretty much wrapped up and clinched total victory in this battle, so he didn't bother pushing his men to try to continue to exploit their success. Now, while that was happening, Sheridan was personally returning to his army and finding it in retreat, so he did everything he could to turn them around. And historian James McPherson writes that, quote, Sheridan's performance on this day was the most notable example of personal battlefield leadership in the war, end quote. By afternoon, Sheridan had managed to regroup his men and turn them around and launched a massive counterattack that was an absolutely devastating blow to Early's forces, and what was left of them fled southward. Other than the occasional irregular attack, Confederate influence in the Shenandoah Valley was pretty well broken, and this gave Sheridan's army a complete blank check to continue to wreak havoc on the resources and infrastructure and property of the valley. They would make a virtual desert out of what had been one of the most bountiful and prosperous areas in the entire South, and as always, it would be the civilians who would continue to bear the brunt of all that long after the bodies stopped dropping on the actual battlefield. 
Hey everybody, CJ here. Very, very glad to be back with another installment of Dangerous History after quite a long absence of not being able to record anything. It's been over a month since the last DHP episode I put out, and I appreciate you all very much for your patience and for those who support the show for your continued support, despite the fact that I had to kind of be out of action, at least as far as recording goes, for a bit over a month. As some of you who interact with me on social media or who are members of the private Facebook group for Scholar Warrior supporters of this show may already be aware, I had a pretty rough month of May in which for the first, I don't know, week and a half of the month, I was in Ireland with my annual study abroad trip that I'm a part of at the college where I work. And that's great. I love the trip. This is my third year in a row doing it at that same time of year. And the trip was fine, except around, I don't know, two or three days before the end of the trip, I suddenly got ridiculously sick, just got clobbered and felt terrible, had all kinds of bad symptoms. But we were, you know, last few days of the trip, we were kind of traveling nonstop to get back to Dublin to spend our last night there and then be close to the airport to fly home. And so there was no opportunity at all for me to do something like go see a doctor or something like that. So I just had to kind of grip my teeth and put up with it. And then we flew back and the day of traveling back, the day of flying back, I have to say in terms of just physical misery and just completely feeling terrible and horrible and kind of having not much I could do about it. It was one of the worst days of my life in that regard. No question. The way they did the flights, I'm sure there were, you know, cost saving reasons why they did it this way. But from a practical perspective, it's extremely inconvenient. They had it so that of course, you can't fly nonstop from Dublin to Jacksonville Airport, which is the airport I fly out of that's closest to my house. So going to Ireland, we did what seems to be a more sensible thing and a more common thing, which is going through New York. And I can't remember, I think it was JFK that we went through, but you go through New York. So you fly from Jacksonville to New York, then you have a, you know, not too bad of a layover, an hour or two. Um, and then you fly across the Atlantic in a big plane and go to Dublin. But coming back, the way they set it up was we flew from Dublin to Atlanta, Georgia, and then from Atlanta to Jacksonville, which is ridiculous. The flight was like, I don't know, around like one hour. The plane wasn't even done climbing when they started descending. And not only is it just kind of stupid seeming to do that and then stop in Atlanta, which is not that far from Jacksonville, and then have to get on a second little plane just to fly from Atlanta to Jacksonville. But the real horrible part about it is that when you do the transatlantic flight going down to Atlanta instead of going to one of the airports in the Northeast, it means that the transatlantic flight ends up being like over eight hours long instead of more in the neighborhood of, you know, six or seven. And it's never exactly fun to be on a plane for that long, but I can tell you that if you're horrifically sick, it's exponentially more miserable. So anyway, 
I got back from the trip just in absolutely terrible condition, and the very next day I went to the doctor to get checked out, and it turns out, and they verified this with an actual official test, I had influenza. I had picked up the flu on my trip at some point. And the really ridiculous part was that same day, I happened to hear on the news that I don't normally watch, but I think it was just on somewhere, and I was just, you know, in passing, that it was the official last day of flu season for the year. And so I, it, that just added insult to injury. So I suffered with the flu and I had the whole run of typical flu symptoms. I had nasty fever. I had chills. I had body aches. I had lethargy. And of course I had very bad cough and also some bad nasal and sinus congestion. So, yeah, no joke, when I was on that eight-hour plane ride, or eight-hour-plus, from Dublin to Atlanta, I was having, like, fever dreams and shakes, and, like, it was, that's how bad it was. So, yeah, it turns out it was the official flu that I was suffering from. So, anyway, it took about a week to a week and a half for all of, or I should say most of the symptoms to go away. It took about a week to a week and a half for the all of the fever, the lethargy, the chills, all that stuff to subside. And then, of course, I ended up with it lingering in terms of cough, vocal cords, and nasal congestion, you know, which is common for flu, especially for the cough, to linger long after most of the other symptoms have been gone. And along with that, I had it just wrecking my voice. And yet, I had to start teaching summer school, which I've been doing ever since I got back from Ireland. And I couldn't cancel very many classes because of the way summer summer school works. So I ended up having to go in and teach these long summer classes with just a wrecked voice and a cough and all this. And it just completely ruined my capability to do something like sit down and record a Dangerous History podcast episode. Now, I was able to make an appearance on the Tom Woods show, and probably many of you have heard that. And I was talking about episode 160 on Remember the Main and all that, the last DHP episode I made before this one that you're listening to now. And big thanks to Tom for having me on, and a welcome aboard to anyone listening to this who's a recent listener to the Dangerous History Podcast who found me through that appearance on Tom Woods. And I was able to get through that, but man, it was tough, and those of you who are used to listening to me probably could hear in that episode how bad I sounded, and... That was the limit of what I could do, was talking to Tom for around a half hour. And of course, in that scenario, I'm only doing half the talking. and It was still all I could do to do that episode. So I, I muscled through it. But man, in terms of sitting down and recording, you know, an hour, two hour plus Dangerous History podcast episode, it just wasn't going to happen. And only recently has my voice gotten much of the way better, and the cough has mostly gone away, although it's still there a little bit. And you could probably hear it even in my voice now, that my voice is still not 100%, but it's gradually getting better. But man, I'll tell you, having to go in and teach long, long summer classes when you're trying to get over something like this is really, really not good. I, I think it greatly extended how long it took for me to get over all this stuff. But anyway, I'm, I'm done complaining. I'm done telling you my, my miserable May story. 
I kind of felt like I wanted to share with you all an explanation so you didn't think I was just, you know, being lazy or negligent or that I'm pod fading or something else horrible like that. No, I just simply was physically incapable of recording a regular DHP episode. Of course, as best I could, despite my illness, I have been continuing, as I always am, to do research, to read, to plan future episodes, to work on composing notes, all those sorts of things. So I've been working on the Dangerous History podcast the entire time I've been away. It's just I was completely unable to actually record something. But here we are, and this is DHP episode 161, Disregarding the Laws of God and Man, the Not-So-Civil War Part 11. And those of you who are recent converts to the show from Tom Woods or from some other source, uh, I would recommend that if you've not already, you go back and all the way back to episode 131 and start listening to this series on the American Civil War in chronological order, especially if you're not super familiar with all the details of this war. And this is a non-consecutive series. I've been working on it for over a year now. And I really want to try to finish it up this summer. So that's my plan, along with some other things I'm working on as well. I do want to probably it'll only take another two to three episodes after this one at most to knock it all out. But in this episode, I'm going to be mostly, from this point onward, talking about Sherman's campaigns in Georgia in mid to late 1864, and I'll also talk a little bit about Lincoln's re-election in November of 1864. So that's the plan, but I do also have some important things to say, including some important announcements you may not want to miss about an upcoming appearance of mine in person. But first, some awesome individuals who've been kind enough to step up to support the show via Patreon over the last about five weeks or so. Even while I was off the grid, so to speak, a bunch of great people stepped up to help me out. So big thanks go out to the following individuals. And there's a bunch of them because it's been so long since my last episode. Big thank yous go to Dan, Laura, JP, Vincent, John, DP, Aaron, Daniel, Question Everything, Kat, Alexandra, WJSH Havens, which I guess is, uh, I think, an email address. And, and also, anyway, thanks to Dave, thanks to David, thanks to Robert, thanks to another Robert, thanks to Kyle, and thanks to Ray Cadillac. Thank you all very much for helping to support the show via Patreon. And again, as always, for a pledge of $5 per month or more via patreon.com slash profcj, you will get a thank you on the next episode I produce. You will have access to special bonus episodes and materials via Patreon that are available nowhere else. You'll get early and ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes as well. And you will also be eligible to join, if you want, the private Facebook group Scholar Warriors just for supporters of this show. So please consider doing that and helping me out with the work I do. It's a tremendous amount of effort and resources I put into this. And while I'm not an adherent to the labor theory of value, nonetheless, it's people who support the show who continue to make this a viable thing for me to do, for it to actually turn some profit for me, and for it to be worth the enormous amount of time I spend on this show. 
Also, one more thank you. Somebody got me recently something off of my Amazon DHP wish list. So thanks to Dave for getting me the book Words That Won the War, which is about the Committee on Public Information during World War I, which is a topic that I will likely cover in more depth at some point in the future. So, one more thing, one more announcement that you won't want to miss. I will be speaking and staying at the 6th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest in Michigan at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, which will run from June 21st, which is a Thursday, through Monday, June 25th. And I personally am going to be showing up on Friday and will be staying through to Monday. This is an event that I was at and that I spoke at back in 2016, but I missed it last year, wasn't able to make it. But now this year I'm going again, and I want to thank the organizers of the event for helping me out with getting there, you know, with arranging a flight for me and arranging a ride for me from the airport to the Circle Pine Center. Really appreciate it. And I will be giving a presentation on Sunday the 24th, if I remember correctly, I believe at noon. So if you're anywhere near... Michigan, or you're able to make it to Michigan from wherever you are from, and you'd like to meet me, you'd like to attend my presentation, or you just want to come to this sort of an event, I highly recommend it. It is a cool event, just personally between you and me. I kind of liked it better than Porkfest. I've heard Porkfest used to be cooler in the past than it is currently, but anyway, I went to both in 2016, and I liked this one better than Porkfest, to be very honest with you. Last I checked, other noteworthy speakers who will be at this event include Scott Horton, who of course has been a guest on this show several times, as well as Brett Vinat of the excellent School Sucks podcast. So it'll be a really cool thing. I really hope you can make it. I'd love to meet uh, any DHP fans who are able to make it to this event. And just real quick, here's the official commercial for the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest with Lou from Freedom Fiends. The 6th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest will be held at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo, from Thursday, June 21st through Monday, June 25th. There will be all sorts of activities in a family and adult-friendly environment. Scheduled speakers include Dana Martin, Brett Vinat, Prof. CJ, and Scott Horton. Round up your friends and family members and get them registered today at mplfest.org. That's Mike, Papa, Lima, Fest.org. Dogs welcome. Longer leashes recommended. All right, thanks, Lou. Now let's go ahead and catch up with our good buddy, that lovable fuzzy war criminal, William Tecumseh Sherman, who's going to do to much of Georgia and the Carolinas what Philip Sheridan did to the Shenandoah Valley.
In the aftermath of successful Union operations in the southeastern Tennessee-slash-northwestern Georgia border area, Sherman was looking to move on Atlanta, which was one of the few larger cities in the Confederacy not yet in Union hands. And larger cities being a relative term, in the neighborhood of 20,000 at this time, which is not a terribly large city, either by modern standards or by northern standards in the 1860s, but by southern standards still makes it a fairly large city back then. So, Atlanta was one of the few larger cities, relatively speaking, that were not yet in Union hands. It was also the second most important industrial city in the Confederacy. Now, again, not terribly impressive in that regard by comparison to many northern industrial cities at the time, but everything being relative, the South had very little industry, and at the time of the war, Richmond was number one, and Atlanta was number two. And at the time of Sherman's campaign, Richmond, of course, was also one of the few important southern cities not yet in Union hands. Now, in contrast to the rather lumbering and ponderous Army of the Potomac, the force that William Tecumseh Sherman now commanded, which was a command now known as the Division of the Mississippi, which was technically comprised of three different armies of significantly varying sizes. This force, though, totaling of the three armies around 100,000 men, this army this collection of several armies, I should say, in contrast to the Army of the Potomac, had a culture and a history in this conflict of being fairly quick and maneuverable and decisive in campaigning and in battle. And in this regard, this force is more similar to Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. It's pretty good at seizing the initiative. It's fairly maneuverable, all that sort of stuff. So, Sherman could rely on maneuvering in commanding his army to a much greater and more successful degree than Grant could rely on maneuver once he took command of the Army of the Potomac up in Virginia, that army being much more one that had a culture and tradition of just being slow and not taking initiative and people just dragging their feet, all that kind of stuff. So one of the results of this was that Sherman's campaign in mid to late 1864 would actually have much lower military casualties than Grant's campaigns in Virginia during the same period, because Sherman was simply able to maneuver his army and not rely on just sort of blunt force tactics. Furthermore, unlike what Grant had walked into with the Army of the Potomac in 1864, Sherman had mostly fairly competent and trustworthy subordinate commanders under his command at the Division of the Mississippi. At the start of this campaign, George Papp Thomas commanded the Army of the Cumberland with around 60,000 men. James McPherson, no relation to the historian of the same name, by the way, commanded the Army of the Tennessee, not to be confused with the Army of Tennessee. Okay, remember, Army of the Tennessee, Union Army, Army of Tennessee, Southern Army. Anyway, the Army of the Tennessee, with about 25,000 men, and then the smallest force of the three was the Army of the Ohio, which had only about 13,000 soldiers and was commanded by John Schofield. Grant's instructions to Sherman prior to the beginning of the Georgia campaign were as follows, quote, You I propose to move against Johnston's army to break it up and to get into the interior of the enemy's country as far as you can, 
inflicting all the damage you can against their war resources. I do not propose to lay down for you a plan of campaign, but simply to lay down the work it is desirable to have done and leave you free to execute it in your own way. End quote. Now, from a cold-bloodedly pragmatic standpoint, this shows Grant's competence as a strategic commander in terms of delegating an important mission to a trusted subordinate and then explaining the big-picture goal of what was supposed to be done and then giving that subordinate a free hand to do it. That's an effective form of management. And whether you're talking about you know managing a store or managing multiple armies in a war, the principle is still the same of effective delegation. As long as you're delegating something to someone you trust to do a good job, you have to give them some latitude to figure out exactly how to get it done. Now, this is the sort of command style that characterized the German militaries of World War I and World War II, in which subordinate commanders were not excessively micromanaged, but instead were allowed to take the initiative as long as they were still pursuing the overall goals of the mission. So, from a pragmatic point of view, this is effective command. However, from a moral point of view, What's going to happen is going to be, well, you might say much more problematic. Now, the logistics in these operations were significant. Supply lines were already running hundreds of miles to supply Sherman's forces, and his armies were going to march hundreds of miles more into enemy territory. In terms of sheer distances, Sherman's ensuing campaign in Georgia could be compared to Napoleon's ill-fated, turned out, invasion of Russia back in the early 19th century. Sherman planned to march from Chattanooga in the southeastern corner of Tennessee down southeastward through Georgia, a distance of 100 miles as the crow flies to Atlanta. And of course, given the roads that Sherman's forces would have to take, it'll end up being a bit over 100 miles for them. And while moving on Atlanta, they were to keep constant pressure on the Confederate Army of Tennessee, which at the start of the campaign was commanded by the relatively skillful but very cautious and defensive, which I would say not necessarily a bad thing given the circumstances, General uh, Joseph Johnston. Johnston, if you'll recall, had taken over this army from the horrible failure Braxton Bragg. Confederate President Jefferson Davis, who hated Johnston, had reluctantly appointed him to this command because he was the only senior Confederate commander available at the time. Johnston did a lot to restore morale and discipline in this army, but it remained somewhat dysfunctional and it had an uneven quality in its subordinate generals. Jefferson Davis was, from the beginning of Johnson's command, riding his ass to try to make him attack, and Johnson also faced plotting and insubordination from his own generals, who went behind his back and communicated directly with Davis, complaining about Johnson's leadership, and in particular, John Bell Hood, one of Johnson's corps commanders, immediately upon assuming that position, began writing frequent letters to Jefferson Davis behind Johnston's back, in which, among other things, he greatly exaggerated the readiness and the capabilities of the Army of Tennessee, and he bashed Johnston for not going on offense, given how high 
who had claimed was the Army's readiness. In fact, soon after Johnston took over the command of the Army of Tennessee, both Hood and Davis thought he should have launched an immediate huge attack up into Tennessee, which, had it been done at the time, would likely have been a complete and epic disaster, wasting piles of Confederate lives and resources, and probably, I would guess, achieving nothing other than perhaps shortening just how long the Confederacy could keep from throwing in the towel. The reality was, Johnston only had a bit over 40,000 men to try to defend North Georgia against Sherman's three armies, which, again, combined to a total of over 100,000 men, which meant that Sherman had about a 2.5 to 1 advantage. And of course, Sherman's army was better equipped and better fed, and arguably had much more competent subordinate commanders on average. So, to me and to many historians more expert on all this than I am, and I would guess to any sane and informed person, really Johnston's caution and refusal to launch a major attack makes complete sense given the circumstances. It's one thing to criticize McClellan for not going on offense more when he always had an overwhelming numerical advantage and, and logistical advantage and you know better fed and better equipped troops and all that. It's one thing to criticize McClellan for excessive caution and defensiveness, but I think caution and defensiveness makes perfect sense for Johnston in the situation in which he found himself. Now, on the other side, for his part, Sherman planned to execute continuous flanking maneuvers against Johnston, and thus he would try to avoid really bloody direct frontal assaults. So generally what Sherman was trying to do was to flank to the left, which would have been to Johnson's army's right. Sherman seems to have realized by this point in the war that even with a major numerical advantage, the defensive, in tactical terms in the immediate battle, was usually much stronger than the offensive in this war. In fact, though Sherman's army was on the strategic offense in the campaign, when it came to the actual tactical situation in the battles that did take place, both armies often tried to entrench as soon as possible and try to take the tactical defensive, digging trenches and putting up obstacles and all that stuff as I've described previously in regard to what was going on at the very time between Lee and Grant up in Virginia. Although occasionally Sherman himself would complain that his army went on the defensive too quickly and too lightly. In other words, that they should only go on the defensive when it's really called for and that it shouldn't be always plan A. Meanwhile, while they were on the move, Sherman's army would to a large extent, live off the land, as they said, by confiscating supplies from civilians. Sherman wrote, quote, Georgia has a million of inhabitants. If they can live, we should not starve. If the enemy interrupt our communications, I will be absolved from all obligations to subsist on our own resources and will feel perfectly justified in taking whatever and wherever we can find, end quote. And of course, in reality, they would often take whatever they wanted, even in cases where no one was harassing their supply and communication lines or anything like that. Sherman actually used census data for every county in Georgia to give him detailed information on population and agricultural resources. So, in a way, just like William of Normandy's Doomsday Book in regard to the Norman Conquest of England, if you can remember back to that DHP episode. 
Knowledge is power, and those who want to confiscate from you must first know who you are and what all you have, so that they can do a better job of taking it from you. On May 5th, Sherman began moving his army toward Atlanta, flanking Johnston all the while, and Johnston, for his part, tended to retreat, focusing on holding his army together and not getting it wiped out or surrounded. And if you look at this campaign, in a lot of ways, what Johnston is doing is very similar to what Nathaniel Green had done in the South during the latter half of the Revolutionary War against the British. The British in that situation having the much bigger and better equipped army and Nathaniel Green, the underdog, and he's basically retreating, but he's retreating in a way that just completely frustrates the British troops. And while Nathaniel Green ultimately won no major battles in a decisive way during that campaign, ultimately he won the campaign and was a major factor in wearing the British out. But anyway... Johnston was able to get about 10,000 reinforcements from elsewhere around this time, but he was still outnumbered by around two to one at least. Southern newspapers and public opinion, who tended to always favor aggressive tactics, generally bashed Johnson for being unwilling to fight, but Sherman, for his part, actually complimented Johnston's tactics and admitted that Johnston was doing a pretty skillful job of frustrating him. Historians Williamson Murray and Wayne Sia, in their book A Savage War, A Military History of the Civil War, say of Johnston's leadership, quote, Johnston seems to have been the only Confederate general to grasp the reality that Confederate armies could not bear the heavy losses inherent in aggressive tactics. Thus, the result was the considerable caution he took in the conduct of operations. Yet, that strategic insight led Johnston at times to miss tactical opportunities to attack Union forces. End quote. By the way, in at least some of these instances where, arguably at least, Johnston missed good opportunities to attack or counterattack, in at least some of these cases, and in fact in many of them, the reason for the inaction was actually not Johnston himself, but subordinate commanders who didn't follow instructions or were late in doing so. And, on more than one occasion, the subordinate in question who dropped the ball in this way was actually John Bell Hood, who was simultaneously writing letters to Jefferson Davis about Johnston's lack of aggressiveness. Historian Harry Stout writes of this campaign, quote, The cat-and-mouse pursuit continued through Georgia, much to the chagrin of Southern editors and politicians who craved a bloody, Lee-style open engagement. But Johnston had other ideas. The longer he retreated into well-fortified positions, the more he knew his detachments could thrive, even as Sherman was forced to expend his peak strength on detachments to repair and guard railroads and supplies. Bemused by the newspapers of the South, which criticized Johnston, Sherman praised Johnston's tactics, all the while fulminating over the lack of a grand battle, which he knew his armies would win. End quote. There were some engagements, but casualties stayed in the hundreds at most in these battles, and often were less than that. But as Sherman's army moved, it confiscated farm produce and livestock, ransacked homes, and destroyed buildings. So even though battlefield casualties were relatively low, civilian suffering was going up. 
The first fairly large engagement of this part of this campaign took place at a battle known as the Battle of Resaca in Georgia on May 13th through 15th of 1864. And what happened was that over the course of three days, the Union forces essentially launched significant probing attacks against strong Confederate defenses. And in this fighting, Union forces suffered over 4,000 casualties to less than 3,000 for the Confederate side. Keep this in mind when we get to where Hood is put in command, plot spoiler, and you'll see the lopsidedness of the casualties flip the other way. After inflicting more losses than he took, Johnston ultimately decided to retreat when he felt that he was starting to lose the advantage, and the battle is considered to be more or less indecisive. And again, it reminds me a lot of Nathaniel Greene's battles in his southern campaign late in the Revolutionary War. Now, things continued over the next several weeks in a similar way to before, with Sherman trying to outflank Johnston, and Johnston alternately either pulling back or putting up a fight, depending on circumstances. And there were a bunch of inconclusive, and by the standards of what was happening up in Virginia at the same time, not super bloody battles. And Sherman's army continued to confiscate or destroy stuff as it moved, and then it would fix any damaged infrastructure that was potentially useful to Union forces, supply and communication lines, things like railroads and bridges. They would fix those things behind them as they moved forward. Because in some cases, of course, the Confederates were destroying bridges and things like that as they retreated. Sherman was getting impatient and frustrated with the situation, and in particular was annoyed at Thomas's Army of the Cumberland, which he felt was habitually kind of slow and all that. Meanwhile, Johnston was preparing strong defenses on and around Kennesaw Mountain. And the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain would take place on June 27th, and it's just a bit northwest of Atlanta. And there, Sherman decided to make a major attack, and Johnston decided that the situation was advantageous enough for his forces and that the defenses were strong enough that he would take a hard stand there. Johnston's forces were spread out a bit thin, but they were very well dug in on some good high terrain on and around Kennesaw Mountain. And at 9 a.m. in the morning, after about an hour of artillery barrages, the left wing of Sherman's army made a faint attack at Johnston's right, while Sherman's main attack was launched by two divisions in the center of the lines. The Confederates weren't really fooled by the faint attack on the flank, and they were able to play some successful defense in both places. Meanwhile, they opened up with a massive surprise artillery barrage of their own in counterattack. They'd actually kept some of their big guns silent earlier in the day in order to give the Union Army the impression that they had a lot fewer big guns than they really did. And ultimately, the Union attack was stopped in its tracks, and it turned into a flat-out rout. By around 11.30 in the morning, it was over, and Sherman's army had suffered 3,000 casualties, and Johnston's army had suffered only about a third that many. Now, one has to wonder, how many battles like this, that were this lopsided, would it really have taken to really kind of stifle Sherman's efforts, and also how many it would have taken 
to delay this campaign's outcome until after November and potentially sway northern elections in a way more favorable to the Confederacy's hopes for independence. So, Kennesaw Mountain was a major tactical defeat for Sherman in the short run, but kind of a la carte. It really didn't much alter the larger strategic picture by itself, but certainly a few more battles like this could potentially have done just that, of course, if such battles had happened. After a few days, Sherman resumed the offensive, but this time went back to his flanking maneuvers instead of direct assaults, forcing Johnston to retreat back towards Atlanta. I want to share with you a little-known story that took place during this period of the war, um, a little bit after the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. In early July, Sherman's army took control of two small factory towns, known as Sweetwater and Roswell, where there were mills that produced yarn, which at the time, like almost every resource in the South, was being used for the war effort. And in this case, the yarn was going to the making of Confederate military uniforms. Since the men were all off fighting in those uniforms, the mills were mostly worked by women, kind of the earliest version of Rosie the Riveter in a way. Rosie the, the mill worker. And they lived in the towns with their children if they had any. And regarding these two towns, when Sherman's forces took them over, Sherman issued the following orders, quote, Arrest all people, male and female, connected with those factories, no matter what the clamor, and let them foot it under guard to Marietta, whence I will send them by cars to the north. Destroy and make some disposition of all mills, save small flouring mills, manifestly for local use but all sawmills and factories dispose of effectually, and useful laborers excused by reason of the skills as manufacturers from conscription are as much prisoners as if armed. The poor women will make a howl. Let them take along their children in clothing, providing they have the means of hauling or you can spare them. We will retain them until they reach a country where they can live in peace and security. End quote. Basically, a group of civilians, mostly women who worked in these mills, along with their children, were being forcibly deported from their homes and were being treated essentially as prisoners of war. Now, I don't know about you, but some of the wording of Sherman's order to my ears almost smacks of colonization language. And I think you can detect this in some of Sherman's other orders and letters from this period as well. And obviously you can detect it much more blatantly in some of the things Sherman said and wrote during the years after the Civil War, when he was in charge of fighting the Indians out west. All this talk about removing people from their homelands and all these sorts of things. So later, in explaining this decision to Henry Halleck, Sherman wrote, quote, They were tainted with treason. I take it a neutral is no better than one of our own citizens engaged in supplying a hostile army. End quote. Now think about that. Guilty of treason for working at a fucking yarn factory in order to provide for your children. And all I can think to say is that the statism and the civil religion is very, very strong with General William Tecumseh Sherman. Historian Harry Stout elaborates on Sherman's thinking in this matter as follows, quote, For Sherman, in fact, there were no neutrals in the Confederacy, and what he did or did not do was his decision to make. 
He could deport civilians or ignore them, but either way, he deemed all white Southerners guilty traitors. There were no innocents, not one. End quote. Sherman's orders in regard to these two towns were carried out. The mills were destroyed, and the female workforce was arrested and literally charged with treason. And they were, along with their children, shipped northward. And ultimately, they ended up in a military prison in Kentucky, where all of them, women and children alike, were kept, held, until the war was over. So, this is an example of the sorts of things that the Union military in general, and Sherman in particular, was doing by this point in the war. Now, getting back to the military campaign between Sherman and Johnston, historians Murray and Sia write this of Johnston's performance so far in this campaign. Quote, The mark of Johnston's generalship lay in the fact that he fended off Sherman's flanking moves and kept his army intact. In effect, he was prolonging the war, and after the failure of Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania in 1863, a Fabian strategy presented the only possibility for the Confederates to gain their independence. The looming fall presidential election in the North was the last remaining possibility for the Confederacy to survive, and the longer Johnston could draw out the campaign in Georgia, the more doubtful Lincoln's prospects would become. But that was not good enough for Davis, end quote. Because Jefferson Davis did not see Johnston's performance so far in that light. All he saw was what the Confederate press saw and what some of Johnston's subordinates saw, which was a guy who's not aggressive enough, a guy who maybe even is too timid or cowardly to throw his forces into harm's way, and that that's all that matters. So, on July 9th, Davis sent, of all people, Braxton Bragg to visit Johnston's army to check out the situation, despite Bragg's obvious, complete lack of anything resembling competency in military matters, which had been shown countless times throughout the war to this point. During his visit, Bragg seems to have mostly just listened to Hood's complaints and then regurgitated them to Davis as his own view on the army and the situation and Johnston's leadership. Hood had continued to complain about Johnston's unwillingness to ever attack, even though, like I said before, actually, on multiple occasions, Johnston had actually ordered attacks in particular situations in which Hood himself had failed to carry them out. Davis was encouraged by Bragg's report to replace Johnston, and ultimately he decided that Hood was the only available candidate to take over the Army of Tennessee. Interestingly, Robert E. Lee wrote to Jefferson Davis before Davis had made the final decision, quote, It is a bad time to release the commander of an army situated as that of Tennessee. We may lose Atlanta and the army too. Hood is a bold fighter. I am doubtful as to other qualities necessary. End quote. Obviously, this was an occasion when Davis did not actually listen to Robert E. Lee's advice, and on July 17, 1864, Jefferson Davis replaced Joseph Johnston as commander of the Army of Tennessee with John Bell Hood. The telegram relaying this order to Johnston was actually pretty snarky. It read, quote, 
I am directed by the Secretary of War to inform you that as you have failed to arrest the advance of the enemy to the vicinity of Atlanta, far in the interior of Georgia, and express no confidence that you can defeat or repel him, you are hereby relieved from the command of the Army of Tennessee. End quote. Davis placed Hood in charge of the Army of Tennessee in part due to the recommendation of Bragg, in fact, in large part to the recommendation of Bragg, which again, to a competent commander-in-chief, Bragg's recommendation should have been grounds for immediately not promoting whoever Bragg was recommending. In fact, should be grounds for firing that guy. Because if you'll recall, Bragg had been a complete train wreck as a general. He'd been removed from field command after multiple disasters, really long after he should have been removed, because Jefferson Davis had this bizarre impossible to really explain personal loyalty to this complete train wreck of a general. But even after Davis had removed him from field command for obvious incompetence, he had then made this guy a top military advisor to him. So as a result, Bragg ended up in the latter year or so of the war, probably having Davis's ear more than any other general in the Confederacy. What a, what a situation that is where it's literally the worst general of the war on either side ends up being the top military advisor to Jefferson Davis during the latter stages of the war. And ultimately it's on Davis because Davis could have just fired him outright. Davis could have, even if he had some weird personal loyalty and didn't want to fire the guy. So I made him military advisor. He also could have just not really listened to him and stuff, but he continued to keep him around and to listen to him. So, in my mind, this is a huge blot on Davis's resume as an effective executive. Now, not only had Bragg been getting Davis's ear very effectively for quite a while, also, before he was assigned to Johnston's army as one of its corps commanders in the Army of Tennessee, John Bell Hood had himself spent significant time when recovering from his wounds in Richmond. And while he was there, he had deliberately and successfully cultivated the friendship of both Mr. and Mrs. Jefferson Davis. He was a far more effective schmoozer than he was a strategic army commander. John Bell Hood was kind of a stereotypical Texan in the regard that he was extremely aggressive and hot-headed. And he was only 33 at the time he was placed in charge of the Army of Tennessee, making him the youngest man on either side of the war to be given full field command of an entire army. He was also severely physically maimed and handicapped at this point. He'd been wounded in the left arm so badly at Gettysburg that that arm would be useless for the rest of his life, though for whatever reason, I guess because there wasn't sign of infection, they had not amputated this now useless arm. And then, later in the war at the Battle of Chickamauga, he'd been wounded in the right leg so badly that in that case, the leg actually had been amputated. So, by the time he came to command the Army of Tennessee, Hood had one useless arm and one missing leg. And while this caused him all sorts of physical issues, where he had to be kind of like loaded onto his horse and strapped in with special apparatus and all that... Despite all that, the wounds had done nothing at all to dampen his reckless and constant aggression. So here you have a situation where that's the guy 
who's being placed in charge of what really arguably at this point in the war is politically the most important campaign. Because even at the time, a lot of people sort of had the sense that if Atlanta falls before November, there's a good chance Lincoln gets reelected. And if Atlanta holds out beyond November, there's a good chance that Lincoln might not get reelected. And so this is the guy you put in charge of that, you know, final last chance for the Confederacy to get any anything like independence. You put this guy in charge, who even Robert E. Lee said, eh, I don't know, he's aggressive, and that's kind of it, you know. So Sherman, on the other side, for his part, was very happy when he heard that Hood was now commanding the Army of Tennessee, because he knew that Hood would just launch crazy attacks despite the huge advantages in men and material that Sherman's army had. Years later, looking back, Sherman wrote of this change in command of the other side, quote, At this critical moment, the Confederate government rendered us most valuable service. The character of a leader is a large factor in the game of war, and I confess I was pleased at this change. End quote. Joseph Johnston had been fairly popular with his men, and he'd done his best to try to minimize losses, given the huge numerical disadvantages that the Confederates had. Hood, by contrast, seems to have been generally disliked by a lot of the men under his command once he took over, and they nicknamed him, and I think this might have gone back to before this, but one of the nicknames for him amongst the grunts was Old Woodenhead, and it seems like the common soldiers under his command often saw him as brave and aggressive, but reckless and perhaps even a bit stupid, and certainly as treating their lives very cheaply on the battlefield. As Hood proceeded to waste his men's lives frivolously in pointless assaults over the next few months, many of his men came to flat out despise him. Previously in the war, Hood had sometimes been pretty good at commanding a brigade or a division when he was under a competent commander. So, if he was given good instructions, he could often be counted on to carry them out well. And on top of that, there's no question that he was clearly personally very brave. He often was a lead-from-the-front kind of guy. That's how he got wounded multiple times. But, as historians Murray and Sia put it, quote, he had not a clue about strategy, logistics, or operations. End quote. In other words, not much of the knowledge and skill sets necessary for commanding an entire army. Just three days after getting command, on July 20th, General Hood lashed out offensively at the Battle of Peachtree Creek, attacking the Union Army of the Cumberland. And the corps of the Union Army, commanded by none other than Fighting Joe Hooker, whom we've seen earlier in the war, put up a tough defense that included close quarters and hand-to-hand combat, as well as some very powerful artillery barrages, and both sides suffered serious casualties. But Hood's were worse, both in absolute and thereby much more so in relative terms. So about 1,900 Union casualties at Peachtree Creek to about 2,500 Confederate. In this and several other battles over the next few weeks, Hood lost more of his men than Johnston had lost over the previous several months commanding the same army. 
Hood had also lost far more men than Sherman had in both relative and absolute terms during this period. And over Hood's first few weeks in command, he suffered around 15 casualties, as opposed to Sherman's army, which again was much larger to begin with, suffering only about 6,000. So Hood was losing men at around two and a half times the rate that Sherman was losing men. And again, all this with an army that was only about half the size of Sherman's army at the start of Hood's command, and would be far less than half by the end of Hood's command. He simply recklessly squandering his men in attacks that are basically pointless. Even though these attacks did probably slow down the Union advance a little bit. Ultimately, this attrition rate was completely unsustainable for Hood, because at the end of the day, math is real. So there wasn't really any strategic advantage gained from this for Hood. It may have delayed Sherman a little bit, but in the long run, it actually didn't delay him because Hood is simply weakening his army so quickly. Now, Hood, for his part, blamed everyone else in his command, other than himself, for these failures, for the failures of these bloody attacks to achieve anything substantive. Hood's losses were so disastrous that even Jefferson Davis, after a while, started to become alarmed and would ultimately order Hood to stop his constant attacks. But by that point, Hood had piled up thousands and thousands more Confederate casualties, which they could ill afford to replace. On July 22nd, Hood launched yet another major attack just outside of Atlanta. And once again, the casualties were high on both sides, but were lopsidedly Confederate, around 5,500 Confederate casualties to only about 3,600 for the Union. This battle is known as the Battle of Atlanta, even though the city itself wasn't taken by Union forces until September. I guess it's just the most convenient thing they could figure out to name it, given that it happened relatively close to the city. The main downside to this battle for the Union was that Sherman's best subordinate commander, a general named James McPherson, apparently no relation to the modern-day Civil War historian of the same name, was shot when he accidentally rode into some Confederate skirmishers, and instead of halting, when they shouted at him, he turned to ride away, and they shot him and killed him. So, Sherman did lose his best rising star subordinate, but ultimately that was not enough to make a difference to the outcome of this campaign. And interestingly, on the other side, Hood actually wrote sadly when he heard of the death of McPherson, who had been a friend and a classmate of his at West Point, from which both of them had graduated back in 1853. To replace McPherson, General Oliver O. Howard was placed in charge of the Army of the Tennessee. Sherman now prepared to close in on Atlanta itself. Instead of just laying siege and waiting, Sherman also began shelling the city itself with 32-pound artillery rounds. Now, Hood's forces were not in the city. They were outside of the city, like in between Sherman's army and the city. So Sherman is firing into the city itself. And in some ways, it calls to mind the bombing campaigns of World War II, obviously not quite as destructive because you can only do so much damage with 32-pound artillery shells, and you're never going to match you know, what a bunch of B-17s or something could do, dropping literally tons and tons of high explosives on the city. But nonetheless, it seems to have been a similar intention as far as trying to just break morale. 
And this was not the first time that civilian areas of a city had been deliberately hit with artillery during this war, but it would be the most sustained example of this. And again, the justification for doing this in the minds of Sherman and then above him Grant and Henry Halleck, and ultimately we must assume Lincoln, was the quote-unquote military necessity loophole in the Lieber Code, which we covered in detail in an earlier installment of this series. For their part, the citizens of Atlanta took cover as best they could in various makeshift bomb shelters. And over the, about the next five weeks, Sherman's forces continued to tighten the noose on Atlanta, and a bunch of inconclusive battles happened, a few of which had casualties measured in the thousands, but many of which were just kind of large skirmishes. And even in these circumstances, Hood was often the one launching the attacks rather than Sherman. And for their part, the Southern press was cheering Hood's reckless attacks on because many of them just wanted to see aggression in their commanders. That's all they really cared about. Commanders who were aggressive, you know, like the martyred Stonewall Jackson and the sainted Robert E. Lee. But in reality, Hood's tactics were bleeding his army to death and completely wrecking it, while not accomplishing much for all that cost, other than at most delaying Sherman's capture of the city by a little bit more. He wasn't even gaining any short-term tactical advantage from all these attacks, which you could at least say that Jackson and Lee often were able to do, even if you're someone who, like me, thinks that ultimately even Jackson and Lee were too cheap with their men's lives and too reckless with offense. And again, this whole time, Sherman's artillery were shelling the city of Atlanta. While many of the city's residents had fled, many still had not, for one reason or another. And Atlanta was shelled for over a month, from July 20th to August 25th. During that period, Sherman's guns fired around 4,500 rounds of cannon fire into the city, and lots of the buildings of the city, including some private homes, were damaged or completely destroyed. We do not know the exact number of civilians who were killed in the shelling of Atlanta, but it was definitely a lot, and must have been measured at least in the hundreds, because Sherman himself estimated that around 500 civilians had been killed in the shelling of Atlanta, and most likely, in reality, it was probably several times that. In various messages to people above him in the chain of command, including Henry Halleck, Sherman was very unconcerned about the civilian deaths, and basically kept using his usual kind of, you know, war is war, war isn't about being nice or making friends, my country is in the right these people are all collectively guilty of treason, therefore anything I can do to them is justified if I think it's necessary to win, and Southerners, in fact, should be thankful I'm not doing much worse. You know, all those types of things is what he had in terms of self-justification. By late August, Sherman's forces were increasingly zeroing in on trying to take the railroad lines that ran out of Atlanta to the south, in an effort to cut off Hood's supplies and communications. At one point, on August 26th, Hood actually believed for a little while that his aggressive attacks had scared Sherman's army off, which is hilarious, um, because most of them, most of Sherman's troops, seemed to have suddenly disappeared from the trenches to the northwest of the city. And in reality, a lot of those guys were gone because what was happening is that most of them were being sent down south of the city to try and seize these railroad lines. 
And by the time Hood realized this was happening, on August 30th, it was too late. Sherman's forces had already grabbed control of those rail lines. And over the next couple of days, Hood tried to attack there, but ended up being fended off with heavy losses for him. Hood then realized he'd have to leave Atlanta in order to avoid having his entire army uh, being completely isolated and surrounded and potentially forced to surrender in mass. So Atlanta fell. Hood pulled his forces out of the city on September 1st in a move that historians Murray and Sia call a near rout because it was hasty and not very well prepared and not in the best order. In other words, it was starting to look a little bit more like running the hell away rather than a very orderly, disciplined, deliberate retreat. Sherman's forces were able to move into the city the next day without real opposition. Sherman cabled Lincoln about the good news, quote, Atlanta is ours, and fairly won, end quote. And all I can say is, I guess it all depends on what you mean by fairly. Ulysses Grant later wrote, and subsequent historians have virtually unanimously agreed, that the taking of Atlanta in September was a major factor, perhaps the major factor, in Lincoln getting successfully re-elected in November. Sherman's shelling of the city had already done tremendous damage to it. Now his army went about blowing up and burning all sorts of buildings and infrastructure. On Whitehall Street, which was the city's main street, they left only one building standing on the entire street. In total, around 5,000 buildings of various types were destroyed, and only around 400 homes were left intact. Sherman reported that around 500 civilians in Atlanta had been killed and around 2,500 wounded in the artillery fire over the preceding month or so. But as Harry Stout puts it, quote, Given the source, one can assume these figures are significantly understated. End quote. Not long after taking the city, Sherman then decided to expel all of the remaining civilian inhabitants from it because he didn't want to have to worry about feeding the civilians, and he didn't want to have to worry about any of them engaging in irregular resistance, even though nothing of the sort had so far occurred since the Union forces came into the city. And it's interesting how often the things that Sherman does that are very legally and morally questionable, to put it nicely, uh, and others like him, such as Sheridan up in the Shenandoah Valley, they justify it on the basis of they're getting attacked by partisans, you know, by irregulars, or they're worried that they will get attacked by irregulars. And in a lot of cases, these fears and even the actuality of them when they do happen are often greatly exaggerated. And it's in many cases seems like it's simply just a justification for doing whatever the hell you want to do against civilians is, Oh, we think they're going to attack us as irregulars, or we think they are um, supporting irregular attacks against us. And therefore let's go, you know, burn everyone's home and take everybody's stuff and make everybody homeless refugees. So what Sherman was doing at the time was basically turning what was left of the city of Atlanta into just a military facility. And so he'd be using all the remaining buildings that were still standing for these sorts of purposes. About all this, Sherman wrote to Henry Halleck, quote, If the people raise a howl against my barbarity and cruelty, I will answer that war is war and not popularity seeking. If they want peace, they and their relatives must stop the war. End quote. Again, all this despite the fact that Sherman's troops had experienced no violent resistance from Atlanta residents since Hood's army had left. 
When the mayor of Atlanta pleaded for mercy, Sherman responded, quote, You might as well appeal against the thunderstorm as against these terrible hardships of war. They are inevitable, and the only way the people of Atlanta can hope once more to live in peace and quiet at home is to stop the war. End quote. Again, the blame for this war is all on your side, and you're all collectively guilty. Even women and children and other non-combatants, you're all collectively guilty. You all deserve this. And it also, these sorts of statements from Sherman calls to mind the Melian Dialogue of Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War back in ancient Greece, where the Athenians are getting ready to just wipe out this much weaker group, the Millions, and there's this famous dialogue between the leaders of the two sides trying to negotiate something, and basically what it comes down to it is Athens is like, look, you either give in to all of our demands and do whatever we want, or we'll completely wipe you out. And the famous line from that exchange is, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. Over the next several days after Sherman made his decision to expel the civilians from the city, over 1,500 Atlantans fled southward with as much of their personal property as they could carry. More than half of these refugees were actually children, and of those who were adults, most were women and elderly people, since most able-bodied young and middle-aged men were either off fighting or were already dead at this point in the war. Sherman continued to exchange messages with Hood during this time, and Hood was outraged and horrified at how the citizens of Atlanta were being treated. You know, I think Hood is largely an incompetent commander, especially at high levels, but when it comes to these sort of morality questions, he seems to have been a much more decent guy than Sherman. So, just a few excerpts from some of these exchanges. Hood wrote, quote, you announced the edict for the sole reason that it was to the interest of the United States. This alone you offered to us and the civilized world as an all-sufficient reason for disregarding the laws of God and man. And now, sir, permit me to say that the unprecedented measure you propose, meaning to kick out all the civilians of the city, the unprecedented measure that you propose transcends in studied and ingenious cruelty all acts ever before brought to my attention in the dark history of war. In the name of God and humanity, I protest, believing that you will find that you are expelling from their homes and firesides the wives and children of a brave people. End quote. Well, I wouldn't call Sherman's actions the darkest thing in the history of war up to that time. You know, we do have groups like the Mongols and others who wouldn't have even given the civilians the chance to flee. They would have just killed them all or enslaved them all or whatever. But nonetheless, it's certainly by the standards of 19th century Western civilization is a pretty uh, brutal thing to do. And it's much more in line with a lot of the racially and ideologically motivated wars of the 20th century to do these sorts of things, at least in the case of Westerners fighting Westerners. In response, Sherman replied that Hood had been immoral and reckless in regard to the civilians by placing his defenses of the city too close to them, and this had caused Sherman's artillery to occasionally accidentally shoot over Hood's forces and hit the city itself. Now, this does not appear to be at all truthful of an explanation of how the city got shelled so much, based on everything I've read about the artillery attack on the city. It seems that Sherman's artillery were deliberately firing into the city itself to try to weaken morale, and their guns and their gunners were much too accurate to have done that much damage to the city, purely by accident. 
Hood, by the way, pointed this out in one of his messages back to Sherman. Now, as for Hood's appeal to God, Sherman responded, quote, I ask you not to appeal to a just God in such a sacrilegious manner. If we must be enemies, let us be men and fight it out as we propose to do and not deal in such hypocritical appeals to God and humanity. God will judge us in due time and he will pronounce whether it be more humane to fight with a town full of women and the families of a brave people at your back, or to remove them in time to places of safety among their own friends and the people, end quote. So Sherman is saying that he's actually doing the more humane thing by kicking all these people out of the city than Hood had done by trying to defend the city while the people were still there. Historian Harry Stout analyzes Sherman's thinking about this as follows, quote, for Sherman, God had long ceased to be the governor of this war. The cause was just and indeed holy, but the conduct profane and disconnected to God and the suffering Savior. Sherman's religion was America, and America's God was a jealous God of law and order, such that all those who resisted were reprobates who deserved death. Thus absolved of all responsibilities or accountability, Sherman could blame the enemy for anything and everything that happened to them. They deserved it. End quote. And if you're paying attention, this attitude on the part of American generals, American politicians, and much of the American public has been, right on up through this day, very similar. This attitude of justifying total war. This is a key, integral part of what we might call the American way of war. It's how people justified a lot of the total wars prosecuted against Native Americans from the 17th through the 19th centuries, and it's also how many Americans have, in much more recent times, justified things ranging from the firebombings of Dresden and Tokyo to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to the horrific things done in Vietnam, and even things like collateral damage of innocent bystanders caused by drone strikes in very recent years. These are all things, by the way, that if another government did them, particularly a government that was not either America or one of America's close allies like the UK or Israel, most Americans and American politicians would condemn such actions as pure evil if done by some country we're not supposed to like. They would condemn these actions as uncivilized war crimes. This way of thinking, it's a hardcore totalitarian version of collectivism that not only dehumanizes actual opponents of the U.S. government, but beyond that, their entire families, extended families, countrymen, tribesmen, ethnic group, religious community, etc., all are guilty, and all deserve whatever you choose to do to them. In fact, no matter what you do to them, they should always be grateful that you didn't do worse. Because it always could have been worse. It's a rather Cobra Kai-esque way of thinking, really, especially in terms of your enemy deserving no mercy. And yes, I watched Cobra Kai not too long ago, and that's why that's fresh in my mind. Now, looking up the chain of command, Grant, Halleck, and Lincoln all agreed with Sherman's decisions, and they backed him to the hilt. All they cared about was breaking the will of the South, and they were quite fine with going as far as necessary in order to accomplish that goal. And by the way, the Union Army in this war transgressed 
against the other side's non-combatants and their property and means of subsistence to a far greater and more systematic extent than the British ever did back during the American War of Independence. Just think it's maybe interesting to point that fact out. When Jefferson Davis went to confer with Hood about strategy in the aftermath of the fall of Atlanta, he found Hood's generals practically threatening resignation if Hood wasn't removed. And Davis also found the rank-and-file soldiers of the Army of Tennessee cheering for Johnston to be put back in command. Now instead, Davis transferred Hood's most disgruntled subordinate, who was William Hardy, elsewhere, and then kept Hood in charge of the Army of Tennessee and, conferring with Hood, began making plans to have the Army of Tennessee invade back into the state of Tennessee in order to make Sherman's forces leave Georgia, kind of draw them out in pursuit, they thought, is what would happen. Now, there had been multiple points in this war already when Jefferson Davis seemed to be disconnected from strategic and logistical reality. And by this point, the third quarter of 1864, he seems to have completely lost any last tenuous tether to reality about this war and how it was going and what was possible. Jefferson Davis gave a speech in Macon, Georgia, on September 22nd, in which he said, quote, Our cause is not lost. Sherman cannot keep up his long lines of communication and retreat sooner or later. He must. And when that day comes, the fate that befell the army of the French Empire in its retreat from Moscow will be repeated. End quote. When Ulysses Grant heard what Davis had said, he replied, quote, Mr. Davis has not made it quite plain who is to furnish the snow for this Moscow retreat. End quote. Historians Murray and Sia describe this ludicrous plan as follows, quote, Davis's strategy by this point had become one of fantasy and delusion, which he continued to peddle to a Confederate public, increasingly despairing about the war's course. In fact, Davis was sowing a whirlwind with his challenge to Sherman, whose response the Confederates of Georgia would soon regret deeply. End quote. When, shortly after Davis's speech, Hood tried to attack Sherman's communication lines north of Atlanta, Sherman's troops fought him off without too much difficulty, and Hood retreated into Alabama for the time being. Even though he dealt with that particular problem, Sherman realized that his supply and communication lines would continue to be vulnerable, and that Hood, or even kind of partisan irregulars, could keep causing him problems— as long as the situation remained as it was, with his army kind of stuck to Atlanta. Instead, what Sherman would do is he would send a third of his forces north back into Tennessee to keep an eye on potential issues from Hood, and then he would take the other two-thirds of his army down southeastward through Georgia to the Atlantic Ocean. He'd essentially be abandoning Atlanta, and also just kind of ignoring, for the most part, what was left of Hood's army, making it largely irrelevant, and just going in the opposite direction. And he would wreak destruction and havoc on the population of Georgia in order to impress upon them that the Confederate government couldn't protect them anymore. Sherman wrote of his plan, quote, I propose to act in such a manner against the material resources of the South as utterly to negate Davis's boasted threat and promises of protection. 
If we can march a well-appointed army right through his territory, it is a demonstration to the world, foreign and domestic, that we have a power which Davis cannot resist. This may not be war, but rather statesmanship. End quote. Grant was doubtful about the wisdom of doing this at first, but Sherman managed to persuade him, and then ultimately Grant would then persuade Lincoln to give it the go-ahead. let's talk a little bit more about this idea of targeting civilians and their means of subsistence as this form of total war. William Tecumseh Sherman is definitely the Civil War general most associated with bringing the war to civilians. And while he's by no means the only Union commander to do so, he certainly did it on a larger and more systematic scale than anyone else in this war. And he seems to have been the most open and upfront about both doing it and justifying it. And as I think I've mentioned before, in part, this comfort with total war seems to have been based on Sherman's participation in the Second Seminole War in Florida in the early 1840s. There, you have U.S. troops facing rather sneaky and skillful guerrilla fighters, as was so often the case in the wars against the indigenous peoples of North America, and as a result of this situation, the U.S. military did what it generally tended to do in these wars. It had resorted to brutal counterinsurgency measures aimed at destroying all civilian support for the resistance. So, in retaliation against unconventional attacks, whether they had already happened or whether they were just potential, Sherman decided to treat Southern civilians, not much differently from how the U.S. Army had treated Seminole civilians in the Seminole Wars, and how other Indian civilians have been treated in other Indian Wars. By the way, there's great continuity here in terms of mindset and strategy and tactics, because after the Civil War, Sherman gets promoted and gets put in charge of the Western Indian Wars, and there he uses similar tactics and strategy. Basically, Sherman's view was that anyone, whether Seminole or Southerner or Lakota, who resisted the holy U.S. government's rendezvous with destiny, anyone who stood in the way of that forfeited all their rights and protections and were fair game, including the civilian populations of any groups who resisted the authority of Team America. Now, a lot of Civil War generals on both sides, of course, had had prior experience either in the Seminole Wars or in other conflicts against Native Americans in which these sorts of total war tactics were used. So Sheridan, for example, had been involved in the Yakima War in the Northwest in the 1850s. However, during the Civil War, it seems that a lot of generals weren't willing to use at least not for a while, the same sorts of tactics against non-combatants of their fellow white men that they had previously used against Indians. But 
Sherman and Sheridan were definitely two that just didn't have qualms about that, didn't have qualms about starting to treat white Americans in the same regard that they had treated Indians when it comes to conflict. And there were others as well who overcame that racial hurdle, especially once Sherman and Sheridan did what they did, and not only did they not get in any trouble, but they were praised by Grant and Halleck and Lincoln for what they did. In other words, in modern lingo, we would say that Sheridan and especially Sherman normalized deploying these sorts of tactics in a white versus white conflict. So in a weird way, you could say that Sherman and Sheridan were pushing for equality, but of course it was equality and something bad. They weren't saying, hey, let's treat the Indians when we fight with them with the same degree of consideration and rules that we would treat a white opponent They're not pushing equality in a positive direction. They're pushing for equality of misery and destruction for those who are on the receiving end of Team America's hostilities. In his book, Advanced to Barbarism, The Development of Total Warfare, author F.J.P. Veal writes of the not-so-civil war and the fact that it turned into, at least on the Union side, what Veal calls primary war, by which he means total war. Quote, The inhabitants of the United States at the middle of the 19th century had had no experience nor any tradition of a major war conducted to the European code, which required that hostilities be limited to the military forces and that non-combatants and private property be respected. But they had a long background of experience and tradition of primary warfare in a most savage form. Hence, it is not surprising that the first great historic break with European practice should have taken place in the sanguinary American Civil War. The military precedents in the United States were nearly all in the pattern of primary warfare. Even President Lincoln himself had fought briefly in his youth against the Red Indians, and he exerted a dominant influence on northern military policy and strategy." Everyone has heard the quotes from Sherman, such as War is Hell, and so on. But fewer people have heard longer quotes, like this one, which is from a letter to his wife that Sherman wrote at the beginning of the Atlanta campaign about the Southern population. Quote, No amount of poverty or adversity seems to shake their faith. Niggers gone, wealth and luxury gone, money worthless, Starvation in view within a period of two or three years are causes enough to make the bravest tremble, yet I see no signs of let-up. Some few deserters, plenty tired of war, but the mass is determined to fight it out. End quote. Or this one in a letter to Confederate politicians, written in the spring of 1864. Quote, The government of the United States has in North Alabama any and all rights which they choose to enforce in war to take their lives, their homes, their land, their everything, because they cannot deny that war does exist there, and war is simply power unrestrained by constitution or compact. If they want eternal warfare, well and good. We accept the issue, and will dispossess them and put our friends in their place. To those who submit to the rightful law and authority, all gentleness and forbearance, But to the petulant and persistent secessionists, why, death is mercy, and the quicker he or she is disposed of, the better. Satan and the rebellious saints of heaven were allowed a continuous existence in hell merely to swell 
their just punishments, end quote. So he's literally demonizing, like not metaphorically demonizing, literally demonizing the population of the South. And again, William Tecumseh to Sherman, quote, By attempting to hold the railroads, I will lose 1,000 men monthly, end quote. So, quote, Until we can repopulate Georgia, it is useless to occupy it. But the utter destruction of its railroads, houses, and people will cripple their military resources. I can make Georgia howl, end quote. And again, note the language that sounds almost kind of colonialist, right? Until we can repopulate Georgia. Now, there was no systematic extermination taking place in the sense of, like, Union soldiers actively going into a place and just wiping out people with firing squads or some other method, the way you would see, for example, done by some of the combatant governments in, say, World War II. But nonetheless, the results in some cases were not that different. It was just a more indirect means of doing that sort of thing. Harry Stout describes Sherman's practice of total warfare in this war as follows, quote, In 1864, civilian sufferings did not mean mass murder of innocent civilians. That would wait for another century. Nor rape. Starvation, destruction of homes and property, and widespread marauding, however, were a different story. Here, the federal commanders engaged in a moral gray zone. Generals could not command rapine to get their wishes. That would not look good in subsequent review. Instead, they had only not to discourage it with mass court-martials or executions. The point was that citizens must suffer. With Lieber's code at the ready, the justification for waging a war of deprivation on civilians was in place. End quote. Now, if you'll recall from the episode where I covered the so-called Lieber Code a while back in a previous episode in this series, the Lieber Code placed a bunch of humanitarian-sounding limitations on what military forces could do in this war, especially in regards to non-combatants and their property and shelter and sources of sustenance and so on. But the Lieber Code also contained the loophole of basically everything being ultimately subject to the discretion of the commander on the spot and his judgment as to, quote-unquote, military necessity. So, it's sort of like the argument that the Constitution's General Welfare Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause pretty much give the federal government of the U.S. a blank check to do whatever. You know, you've got this document with all these restrictions, and then there's this one short little part that's like, oh yeah, and by the way, none of this applies if the commander on the spot thinks there's a military necessity to break any of these rules. We don't have exact numbers, but it's widely agreed that there were very, very few civilian casualties on the Union side of this war. You know, there were a handful of significant invasions into Union territory, and even a lot of those were earlier in the war, when neither side was really targeting civilians on a wide scale. So we don't have exact numbers, but it's not many northern civilians who are killed by this war. On the other hand, though, uh, Confederate civilian casualties probably numbered at least around 50,000. And this, by the way, is a figure of around 50,000 endorsed by top Civil War historian James McPherson, who is hardly someone who could be accused of being a neo-Confederate or something like that, or a Confederate sympathizer. Again, I've already kind of said this, but I'll say it again. This total war, this idea that going after, in a deliberate sense, non-combatants and their means of subsistence is okay, 
and that almost anything is justified in the name of winning a war because your side is by default righteous. This is all a big part of the American way of war, along with, you know, we could probably list a bunch of things that kind of characterize the typical American way of going to war. Things like having a giant logistical footprint everywhere you go, things like trying to solve all kinds of problems, often inappropriately or even counterproductively, through technology. In other words, a general preference for stuff over skill in a lot of areas. I mean, we could list other things as well, but... I think this idea of total war and self-justification is a major part of the trademark American way of going to war, and it calls to my mind the famous 60 Minutes segment that probably many of you have seen from the 1990s, in which Secretary of State Madeleine Albright is confronted with the claim that around half a million Iraqi children had already died because of American sanctions against Iraq in the 90s that even kept out things like medicine and water purification equipment and so on. And instead of denying these numbers or denying that this is happening, Albright's response is to say, well, we feel that the price is worth it. So she might not be as over the top as Sherman, but I think you can definitely still detect a, a connection in the mindset and the justification. And in fact, I would argue there is a direct through line from the Indian Wars through the Civil War to the brutal Philippines War, right on up through things like World War II, in which I'll point out, if you don't know, World War II, Team America was by far the number one champion country in that conflict when it came to bombing civilians. And this is all despite the fact that America only joined the war after the war had already been going on for over two years. And then, of course, this through line would continue into Vietnam, in which Team America dropped more explosives on that little poor country than it had dropped on Germany and Japan combined in World War II. And then we have all of the more recent wars, including Iraq, Afghanistan, the various drone wars. And I think you get the picture that there's a clear pattern. There's a direction. There's a trend. There's a through line. There's a connector. This idea that Team America gets to live by different rules because it's special. This idea that Team America can do whatever it wants in war and it's okay. Because by definition, whatever Team America does is morally virtuous. Not because of the action, but simply because it's Team America doing it. We can do things that if other countries did them would be illegal and, and evil and horrible and uncivilized, but when we do it, it's okay, not because the action or the results or anything are any different, but because we're the ones doing it. It's this creepy form of identity politics that I've mentioned before in other episodes of this show. Now, here I want to turn away from the military campaigns for a little bit to talk about political campaigns and to talk about the re-election of corporate Abe. 
On June 8, 1864, while things were still being decided in North Georgia, Abraham Lincoln had been nominated for his second term as president. Believe it or not, this was actually kind of unusual for the time period, because for about a generation, the U.S. had had only one-term presidents, and it wasn't even all that common for someone to receive their party's nomination for a second term. In fact, the last president who'd successfully been elected to a second term had been Andrew Jackson, whose last term had finished up back in 1837, and no party had even nominated a sitting president for a second term since back in 1840. Now, there were some interesting abnormalities in this election, aside from the fact that it took place during a period in which the southern part of what would normally be the United States was not participating for obvious reasons, and all the things that go along with the war itself. So, for example, an unusual thing about this election is that a group of Republicans who were much more abolitionist-oriented, and for lack of a better term, we might say kind of left-wing than Lincoln was, initially tried to take the nomination from him and replace him with the Treasury Secretary, Salmon Chase. When this failed, many of these same Republican activists participated in a campaign of what they called the Radical Republican Party, to which they ran former General John Fremont for president. Now, you might recall him from earlier in this series. He's a guy who had been a Mexican War hero, and early in this war had actually tried to free a bunch of slaves in Missouri, uh, an action for which Lincoln actually fired him. So for a while, there was this radical Republican Party campaign trying to challenge Lincoln and outflank him on the left of the Republican Party. But ultimately, prior to the election actually happening, the general election, Fremont and the radical Republicans, out of concern that they might split the Republican vote and hand the victory to the Democrats, dropped out of the race. I think it's September, so well before the election actually happened. Now, technically speaking, Lincoln was not nominated by the Republican Party at this time, as he had been back in 1860. He was technically speaking nominated by the so-called National Union Party, which is what the Republican Party called its national campaign of candidates in this election, although state-level candidates continued generally to call themselves Republicans. Now, what's going on with this name change? Well, they're trying to brand themselves in a particular way. And in large part, this name change for this election was a marketing strategy. It was designed to try and appeal to some of the so-called war Democrats, which meant the Northern Democrats who still strongly supported the war against the South in order to prevent Southern independence. The National Union Party's platform for this election included support for an amendment to abolish slavery nationwide, i.e. to do what a lot of people seem to think the Emancipation Proclamation did, but actually did not do. The platform also included calls for pursuing the war on the Confederacy until unconditional surrender, again, another common element of the American way of war, with a few notable exceptions, American wars typically involve a demand for unconditional surrender, typically involve negotiations of give in to every demand we have without any conditions or we'll keep waging total war on you. And this tendency of American wars to be waged on the basis of unconditional surrender or something that in practical terms amounts to it, you know, placing demands on the enemy that you know they can never accede to. This method of war has increasingly become the norm as the U.S. has gained in power since the early 19th century. 
So just as a side note, what does this demand actually mean in terms of consequences, demanding unconditional surrender or something very much like it? Well, its practical consequences tend to be two related things. First, it means that the enemy will be much more likely to fight on longer. You know, the, the enemy will be much less likely to throw in the towel, even when it seems obvious that they've lost. Something which, you know, their refusal to surrender, the U.S. will then point to as proof that the enemy is just completely crazy and there's no point even trying to negotiate with them. They're just nuts. See Japan in World War II and all related to that. Demanding unconditional surrender also, in turn, means that total war in, another, in one form or another will probably be necessary in order to get the enemy to throw in the towel unconditionally. You demand unconditional surrender, they decide to fight to the death, you use their willingness to fight to the death to justify you doing worse things to them, and as proof that they're crazy, and so they don't deserve any consideration whatsoever. Now, speaking of all that, the National Union Party platform in 1864 had nothing whatsoever to say about the conduct of the war in any way other than unqualified support, so it didn't address any of the things that were happening to civilians. It didn't address the thousands of homeless Southern refugees who were in danger of starving to death in the winter, all these sorts of things, not even on the radar. Hannibal Hamlin of Maine had been Lincoln's VP during his first term, but for his second term, Lincoln chose another running mate. He instead went with Andrew Johnson. Hamlin was a so-called radical Republican, and it had made political sense for him to be Lincoln's running mate in 1860 as a way to provide some regional balance and some political balance to the Republican ticket to balance out that Lincoln was a Midwesterner and was a moderate Republican. But now, with the whole National Union Party strategy of trying to be more moderate in the big picture of the Union in order to try and win over some war Democrats, Lincoln wanted to balance the ticket in the opposite direction. So, Andrew Johnson was a Democrat and a Southerner. He was a Tennessean. In fact, at the time he got the VP nod, he was serving as Tennessee's Union Occupation Governor. Even though Johnson was a Democrat and was a Southerner, he was pro-Union and he was a pro-war Democrat. And this fact, though, that despite being pro-war and pro-Union, he was a Democrat, would cause no end of political problems once Lincoln got assassinated, of course, as Johnson simply could not get along with the radical-dominated Republican Congress of the late 1860s. But that's a story for another day. But the point was, having Johnson in the VP slot was designed to appeal to as many war Democrats as possible, and also designed to appeal to as many voters in the so-called border states as possible, places like Missouri, Kentucky, and Maryland. The Democrats, for their part, were split between so-called peace Democrats who wanted to quickly have a negotiated end to the war and were somewhat open, seemingly, to the possibility of Confederate independence, and war Democrats who criticized Lincoln on various grounds but ultimately did support the war and didn't support the idea of quickly negotiating an end to it. The Democratic Party nominated former Union General George McClellan as their presidential candidate. Now, McClellan himself was a war Democrat, 
But the Peace Democrats got one of their guys, a guy named George Pendleton, in the VP slot. And the Peace Democrats also actually wrote the party's platform for the campaign, even though McClellan himself, their own presidential nominee, would not endorse this platform. He actually continued to support the war. So it's a very confusing Democratic campaign in 1864. You've got a war Democrat for president, a peace Democrat for vice president, and a party platform written by peace Democrats, but which the presidential candidate will not endorse. So since the Democrats' platform was written by the peace Democrats, it called for a negotiated end to the war against the South, and while it didn't endorse explicitly granting the South independence, it kind of left it somewhat open and set the framework of such a negotiated end to the war as, quote, the Constitution as it is, and the Union as it was, end quote. So, trying to, like, put things back to where they were before 1860, as if that was possible, given all that had happened since then. The platform also criticized Lincoln's conduct of the war, and even some of his domestic actions in Union territory as involving many breaches of the Constitution. Interestingly, though, even the Democrats' platform written by the Peace Democrats did not address the question of Union conduct of the war, things such as total war measures. Even this platform didn't really bring that stuff up in any significant way. While the platform criticized some of Lincoln's unconstitutional actions within the Union political system, Democratic campaigners never really raised, in a big way, fundamental questions about the actions of Sheridan and Sherman and so on, or the conduct of the war overall. They did not seem interested in questioning the actions of generals in the field. By contrast, they were certainly willing to play the race card in the campaign in order to bash Republicans for being too friendly to blacks and in opposition to nationwide abolition being an explicit war aim. Democratic campaigners in this election even would sing racist songs to fire up the many, many Northerners who were still highly racist and really didn't want to fight this war if they believed the war was all about abolition and racial equality and all that. So, just as one example, to the tune of the refrain of the song John Brown's Body, which, if you'll recall, is also the tune of Battle Hymn of the Republic, they sang, quote, Tell old Abe to let the nigger be. We don't want the darkies free. Glory, glory, hallelujah. End quote. So all this total war stuff we've been talking about in this episode was not even on the table as a campaign issue for any faction within Northern politics in the 1864 election. It's kind of typical U.S. campaigns in and around war, where if the war's going well, we're all pro-war. If the war is not going well, some of us will be anti-war. But it never has anything, or very rarely, I should say, in terms of major segments of public opinion. You know, there will often be radical small factions that are bringing up moral issues about a particular war's causes and conduct. But in terms of major segments of political opinion in the mainstream, it's rarely brought up the issues of conduct of war. Harry Stout writes that in the months leading up to the general election, quote, Lincoln was far less concerned with Sherman's conduct of the war, of which he approved, than with the implications of the Atlanta victory for the coming national election. Before Atlanta, 
Lincoln had been certain he would lose. He drew up contingency plans for a massive escalation in the time he had left before the inauguration of his rival. End quote. In fact, Lincoln actually wrote, signed, and sealed orders to this effect that would have been put into action if he'd lost the general election. In other words, if he had lost his re-election campaign, he would have still been a lame duck for, um, I think, about four months before the new president came into office. So had he lost during that lame duck period, he would have launched an all-out, all-fronts offensive designed to completely wreck the Confederacy and win the war in the few months before he left the White House. So kind of interesting that presumably if Lincoln had been defeated for re-election, especially if it was by a significant margin, that would signal to people who believe that democracy is this sacred thing and the will of the people should always triumph. That would signal, presumably, that American voters didn't want the war to continue. And Lincoln was planning on doing the opposite of the voters' expressed opinion if they expressed an anti-war opinion. But of course, the capture of Atlanta really turned the tables on Lincoln's likeliness to win. And in fact, Lincoln had some clear advantages in a bunch of ways. I've already mentioned the Democratic Party had much more significant internal divisions than did the Republican Party, especially once the radical Republicans stopped their campaign in September. Now, looking back at Lincoln's first election to the White House, in 1860, he had managed to win the Electoral College majority, despite receiving less than 40% of the popular vote. But now, in this election in 1864, most of the states that he had lost in 1860 were now Confederate states and obviously would not be participating in this election. Also, the lack of any major Confederate battlefield victories in the final months leading up to November... Remember, the Battle of Cold Harbor, Lee's last significant victory, occurred back in June. When you combine the lack of Confederate victories, combined with the fall of Atlanta in early September, this made a lot of the northern public feel that their side was winning the war. And one thing that history shows us is that Americans, at least most Americans, are usually bloodthirsty warmongers as long as they feel that the war is going well and they're winning. It's only when they start to feel that they might not be winning that they start to maybe ask some questions about a particular war. Lincoln's main campaign message was, don't change horses in midstream. So, yes, that seemingly is where that old cliché comes from. And it's a cliché because it's largely worked for much of American history as a strategy. There have only been a few times when a president who starts a war gets defeated for re-election if the war is still going on when the re-election happens. So, for a recent example, you can see George W. Bush's re-election in 2004. Some people have suggested that if Jefferson Davis had simply left Joseph Johnston in charge of the forces opposing Sherman in Georgia, perhaps Atlanta would not have been taken at least before November, and Lincoln might not have been re-elected. And... While it's impossible to say for sure, A, if Johnson could have successfully held off that long, and B, if the lack of Atlanta being taken before the election all by itself would have been enough to defeat Lincoln, it's kind of an interesting what-if scenario to ponder if you're into that kind of thing. And I think for sure, if nothing else, it's reasonable to say that Johnston, remaining in charge of Confederate forces in Georgia, 
would have put up a more effective and less moronic defense against Sherman than Hood did, and as we saw, Sherman himself at least seems to have thought the same. One more kind of set of advantages that Lincoln had was that he stacked the deck for the election in a few different ways. One was suppression of civil liberties in the North, including interference with freedom of speech and press, something that I might actually mention a little bit more in a future episode. And this obviously put practical limits on opposition campaigning. Lincoln had been doing these sorts of things in the North throughout the war, infringing on individual liberties in ways that seem to any honest, literate person to clearly violate sections of the Bill of Rights, and doing so, of course, in the name of, with the excuse of, the crisis or emergency situation. A lot of this sort of thing, by the way, would be precedent-setting for future administrations that would want to blatantly infringe on civil liberties as explicitly spelled out in the Bill of Rights. And basically, all you'd need for moral and legal justification would be an emergency or crisis that you could point to, like a war, or in the modern era, amorphous, never-ending threats like communism or terrorism, which, when they seem to not be a threat, is just proof of how slick and sneaky they are, right? So, looking later in American history, when Woodrow Wilson in World War I, Franklin Roosevelt in World War II, and George W. Bush and the so-called War on Terror, when these sorts of presidents blatantly violated the Bill of Rights, all of them, in one way or another, based some of their justification on pointing to precedents set by the Lincoln administration back during the Civil War. And since the mainstream political and academic establishments have so successfully deified and sanctified Lincoln in the American civil religion, to the point where Lincoln is the American civil religion's Christ figure, Lincoln can do no wrong. Therefore, if Lincoln did something, then it's okay for later presidents to do it. In the same way that Christians would say, yeah, base your conduct on the actions of Jesus, the adherents of the American civil religion would say, yeah, if you want to base your policies on the things Lincoln did, that's great. Now, another way in which the deck, the deck was stacked around the edges, at least, is that there were two new U.S. states whose origins were at least a little bit controversial, which participated in this election, and which everyone kind of knew were going to break overwhelmingly Republican. And the first of these new states was West Virginia. During the war, the new state of West Virginia was created out of what had previously been the northwestern counties of Virginia. Before the war, there was no West Virginia, just one big Virginia. Now, the reason for the creation of West Virginia was that those counties had, by strong majorities, opposed secession from the Union. West Virginia was officially recognized as a state by the U.S. government in June of 1863, so plenty of time to spare ahead of Lincoln's re-election campaign to help pad his electoral tally, since, of course, the state would be mostly Republican. Now, I should point out there have been legal constitutional-type questions as to the exact details of how all this was done, which I won't get into here because of time. In other words, the detachment of those counties from Virginia and forming of them into a new state. 
So I'll just say, long story short, the Supreme Court has ultimately come down on the side that the creation of West Virginia was all legal and constitutional for whatever that's worth. And while I don't generally like to get lost in constitutional rabbit holes, because as I guess a Spoonarian who doesn't accept the legitimacy of the Constitution to begin with, I see a lot of stuff along those lines where you're getting into these nitpicky clauses and taking apart a comma and whatever as kind of red herrings and moot points and whatnot. You know, I'll sometimes invoke the Bill of Rights just to illustrate how often and blatantly and how far the government deviates from its own supposed rules regarding individual rights. But for this issue at this point, I'll just point out that there have been at least some lawyers and scholars who have cast doubt on the creation of West Virginia ever since. But in reality, it's been a, a fait accompli for over 150 years. So I would say don't hold your breath waiting for anything to change in regard to West Virginia. But I bring this all up just to show that it is kind of interesting that Lincoln would endorse secession, such as the secession of West Virginia from Virginia in certain circumstances, when it's politically beneficial to him, as long as it doesn't involve anyone exiting the hallowed, sacred, eternal, divine union with a capital U. But regardless of all those questions about whether the creation of West Virginia was legal and constitutional, nonetheless, it added its five electoral votes to Lincoln's total in 1864. And the other, even more newly created state, like barely created in time for this election, that then added a few to Lincoln's electoral votes was Nevada. Now, if you think Nevada's empty today, other than a couple of cities, imagine how empty it was in 1864. It really should not have qualified as a state at that point in time. On October 31st, 1864, only eight days before the presidential election, the territory of Nevada was made a full-fledged U.S. state, and thus it and its mostly Republican population could participate in helping to re-elect corporate Abe. In order to get the state admitted in time, for the election, their state constitution had been sent to D.C. via telegraph at a cost of over $3,000, which was the most expensive telegram ever sent in the United States. The standard for full-fledged statehood had been set at 60,000 population, all the way back in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. But in Nevada, the census of 1860 said there were fewer than 7,000 residents. And even by the 1870 census, despite some mining rushes into the state, Nevada still only had a bit over 42,000 residents. So not only did they have to rush things, they had to kind of bend the standard rules in order to get Nevada in to the presidential election, in order to pad Lincoln's election with another three electoral votes. Again, as with the case of West Virginia, those few electoral votes did not prove necessary. Lincoln could have been reelected without votes of West Virginia and Nevada, but it shows you that there's this political gamesmanship going on to stack the deck, and that this is very much in contrast to the sainted image of Honest Abe that's usually out there in the mainstream. 
One more thing I'll mention in this vein is that Lincoln tried to stack the deck even more, as briefly mentioned in a previous episode in the series, by getting occupied Tennessee and Louisiana to vote in this election, but to do so under rules which basically disenfranchised former Confederates so that by default, most people voting are going to be Republicans. Ultimately, though there were elections in the state for president in 1864, the Congress chose not to count their electoral votes, presumably in part because they ended up not being at all necessary to re-elect Lincoln, and presumably also because it avoided any potential challenges or criticism. So Tennessee and Louisiana didn't actually help in practical terms getting Lincoln re-elected. Those votes weren't necessary for him, but again, it just kind of shows you how the Republicans or the National Union Party in this campaign is willing to pull out all the stops to stack the deck in every little marginal way they can for their guy. In addition to all those advantages Lincoln had by this point in the war, in part due to the fact that the Union clearly appeared to be winning by the fall of 1864, Lincoln had huge support among the actual soldiers in the Union Army, and they not only voted for him in large numbers, but there's evidence of letters and so on that exists to show that many Union soldiers were writing to friends and relatives back on the home front and were urging them to vote for Lincoln as well. Another thing Lincoln had going in his favor for re-election was the support of a lot of northern clergy and religious publications, especially the more pietistic evangelical ones. Harry Stout writes that, quote, By 1864, the pulpit and religious press were so caught up in the holy cause that they supported not only the war, but also the Republican Party in explicitly partisan ways. Northern sermons were shamelessly partisan, implying to their listeners that it would be sinful to vote Democratic. Seven Methodist Episcopal annual conferences condemned all talk of armistice or compromise as quote-unquote unchristian and sinful. Eleven Baptist associations were outspoken in their opposition to the Democratic platform on religious grounds. Similarly, old and new school Presbyterians instructed their members to support the Lincoln government. End quote. The result of all these factors was that Lincoln won a strong, though not overwhelming, popular vote majority of 55%, which gave him a massive electoral college landslide of 212 votes to McClellan's 21. Due to the winner-take-all method, in which most states allot their electoral votes, Lincoln won over 90% of electoral votes in this election, but had won only 55% of the popular vote. So, shows you how a fairly strong victory can be translated by the Electoral College into this ridiculous landslide. McClellan, for his part, had only won the states of Kentucky, Delaware, and New Jersey. Political historians have calculated that even if the Confederate states had been all participating in this election— Lincoln still probably would have won the Electoral College and thus would have been re-elected, though obviously he probably wouldn't have won the popular vote in that scenario. After having suffered some setbacks in the midterms back in 1862, the Republicans in 1864 made big gains in Congress and also in state governments as well. With the re-election of Lincoln, 
The question of whether the war against the South would continue on through total victory was obviously settled very much in the affirmative. So now, it was just a matter of how much longer would the Confederacy hold out before throwing in the towel, and how much death and destruction would occur before that happened. By the way, when Lincoln was re-elected, the same religious leaders and publications who'd campaigned for him on explicitly religious grounds would point to Lincoln's successful re-election as further proof that God favored the Union cause. And of course, that also meant that God endorsed the total war measures that the Union Army was using to conquer the South. So, long story short, Lincoln was re-elected, and no major national voices in the North of any party made the conduct of the war any sort of an issue. last thing I want to cover in this episode is Sherman's so-called March to the Sea in late 1864. As I said before, Sherman decided that he'd take around 60,000 men who would be handpicked as hardy, able-bodied veterans and march them from Atlanta southeastward to the city of Savannah, Georgia, cutting themselves loose from supply and communication lines. Even as the crow flies, this is a distance of almost 250 miles, and for the routes that Sherman's forces would take, it would end up being closer to 300. This army would be doing what they referred to as living off the land, meaning they'd bring some supplies with them, but since they'd be cut off from further resupply, they would replenish themselves at the expense of the civilians of the region. Grant and Lincoln both had some worries about Sherman's plan, particularly that he'd be out of touch with supply and communications, but ultimately Grant trusted Sherman's judgment, and Lincoln in turn trusted Grant's. On November 9th, as Sherman was preparing to execute this march, he issued Special Field Orders No. 120, which was supposed to govern the conduct of the men in this operation. Here's most of the really meaty part of these orders, exempting, you know, the kind of extraneous details about the exact routes to be taken in the organization of the army and so on. So this is from Headquarters Military Division of the Mississippi, in the field, Kingston, Georgia, November 9, 1864. And so we're starting up with Section 4 of the General Field Orders, which is when they really get into the details of how supposedly... Sherman's army is going to interact with the civilians along the way. Quote, The army will forage liberally on the country during the march. 
To this end, each brigade commander will organize a good and sufficient foraging party under the command of one or more discreet officers, who will gather, near the route traveled, corn or forage of any kind, meat of any kind, vegetables, cornmeal, or whatever is needed by the command, aiming at all times to keep in the wagons at least ten days' provisions for the command and three days' forage. Soldiers must not enter the dwellings of the inhabitants or commit any trespass, but during a halt or a camp they are permitted to gather turnips, potatoes, and other vegetables, and to drive in stock of their camp. To regular foraging parties must be instructed the gathering of provisions and forage at any distance from the road traveled. Now, just as a side note, I'll point out an analogy I believe I referred to back in the Grunt's Eye Perspective episode of this series, that you basically have, when a Civil War army is marching around in the field, you basically have a mobile city. And in this case, it's a city of over 60,000 men, which means it's a city three times the size of Atlanta's population before it was taken by Union forces that's marching around and confiscating its food as it goes. So keep that in mind. Back to the document. To Army Corps commanders alone is entrusted the power to destroy mills, houses, cotton gins, etc., and for them, this general principle is laid down. In districts and neighborhoods where the Army is unmolested, no destruction of such property should be permitted. But should guerrillas or bushwhackers molest our march, or should the inhabitants burn bridges, obstruct roads, or otherwise manifest local hostility? then army commanders should enter and enforce a devastation more or less relentless according to the measure of such hostility. Now we're getting into section 6. As for horses, mules, wagons, etc. belonging to the inhabitants, the cavalry and artillery may appropriate freely and without limit, discriminating, however, between the rich, who are usually hostile, and the poor or industrious, usually neutral or friendly. Foraging parties may also take mules or horses to replace the jaded animals of their trains, or to serve as pack mules for the regiments or bridges. In all foraging of whatever kind, the parties engaged will refrain from abusive or threatening language, and may, where the officer in command thinks proper, give written certificates of the facts, but no receipts, and they will endeavor to leave with each family a reasonable portion for their maintenance. Negroes who are able-bodied and can be of service to the several columns may be taken along, but each commander will bear in mind that the question of supplies is a very important one and that his first duty is to see to those who bear arms, end quote. Now, how many of those restrictions on entering people's homes, using threatening or abusive language, making sure that they don't confiscate too much from the people, how many of those do you think in practice are going to be even remotely followed or enforced? In the last part of the orders in regard to quote-unquote Negroes who are able-bodied being taken along, Sherman actually did all he could to discourage so-called contrabands, which you may recall means runaway slaves, from hanging around his army and following with it and so on, because he didn't want to have to deal with feeding or otherwise providing for them. The only exceptions he occasionally made were those male contrabands who could provide some sort of useful labor that in Sherman's mind might even out the expense of feeding them. And many of those contrabands 
who accompanied Sherman's march for at least part of the journey, were in terrible shape as far as food and shelter and all that sort of thing. Harry Stout describes Sherman's point of view on waging total war on Georgia as follows, quote, Sherman had already made the moral leap to justify destroying everything in his path by redefining citizens as no different from combatants. Again, civilians would not be directly murdered, though many would no doubt starve or die of malnutrition, but they would be considered the enemy, end quote. The march to the sea officially began on November 15, 1864. On their way out, Sherman's army famously set what was left of the city of Atlanta on fire, so that the abandoned city would be uninhabitable and useless both to Confederate soldiers and to Southern civilians for the foreseeable future. Years later, in his memoirs, Sherman described the beginning of the march to the sea as follows. Quote, we rode out of Atlanta by the Decatur Road, filled by the marching troops and wagons of the 14th Corps, and reaching the hill just outside the old rebel works, we naturally paused to look back upon the scenes of our past battles. Behind us lay Atlanta, smoldering and in ruins, the black smoke rising high in the air and hanging like a pall over the ruined city. Some band, by accident, struck up the anthem of John Brown's body. The men caught up the strain, and never before or since have I heard the chorus of Glory, Glory, Hallelujah done with more spirit or in better harmony of time and place. End quote. Jeffrey Hummel writes this of Sherman's march to the sea. Quote, Discipline was lax among Sherman's foragers, called bummers, who cut a swath of plunder and pillage 60 miles wide. Encountering very little organized resistance, they almost never physically harmed white civilians, primarily women, children, and old men. But they invariably took or destroyed all food and valuables, and often set fire to dwellings as well. Occasionally, rebel prisoners were summarily executed as reprisals for guerrilla attacks. Eventually, Sherman issued direct orders that, should a Union man be murdered, then a rebel selected by lot will be shot. In aggravated cases, retaliation will be extended as high as five to one. End quote. Historian Harry Stout describes Sherman's march as follows quote, With a front that ranged between 25 and 60 miles wide and a pace that covered 12 miles a day, Sherman's vengeful foragers cut a swath of destruction that seemed almost a frolic to the virtually unchecked Yankees, but was a terror to defenseless civilians. One New York soldier described the devastation in chillingly entertaining terms. Stout now quotes this New Yorker. Destroyed all we could not eat, stole their niggers, burned their cotton and gins, spilled their sorghum, burned and twisted their railroads, and raised hell generally. Stout then continues. As they went the army destroyed or confiscated all resources and property that could be remotely considered of military value. This included, of course, food for civilians now threatened with starvation in the coming winter months. Not surprisingly, although private homes and property were theoretically protected by Sherman's orders, commanders could not prevent the troops from exacting revenge on the people. End quote. 
Eventually, Union General Oliver Howard, who was a deeply religious man, was disturbed enough by his soldiers' actions that he issued an order that anyone found pillaging or burning a building who had not been explicitly told to do so would be shot. However, over the remainder of the campaign, not a single Union soldier was shot for doing that even though it's pretty obvious that those sorts of actions of pillaging and burning and so on without being told explicitly to do so were increasingly standard operating procedure among the soldiers throughout the army, including those under Howard's command. Harry Stout explains this seeming contradiction that Union commanders issued official orders against excessive burning and pillaging, but then never even remotely tried to enforce them, as follows, quote, the very strategy of inflicting 60,000 battle-hardened and unsupplied men on defenseless communities could not possibly have led to anything else. And the commanders, being intelligent West Point graduates, knew it. It was a classic case of covering their moral flanks with the rhetoric of orders while knowing that the frontal assault would continue the urban destruction. They knew as well that carnage on civilians who had no one to defend them would further the war aims of demoralization and despair. Sherman understood this more clearly than the Christian General Howard and embraced terror as a war aim. Having emptied the acts of war of their moral content, he reduced the action to which party can whip by whatever means it took. End quote. Sherman later admitted that some robbery and pillaging took place at the hands of his foragers, but he claimed to have never heard of any instances of murder or rape taking place. And that's hard to believe given how many eyewitness and first-person stories there are of such things surrounding Sherman's march to the sea and their later march up through the Carolinas, particularly in regards to rape. In fact, there's reason to believe that Sherman's troops particularly liked to rape black women, and that given all the attitudes of the time, obviously stories that black women told of having been raped by Union soldiers would never be taken very seriously by any existing authorities at the time. Historian Crystal Feimster, whom I believe is at Yale University, has actually done some work in which she argues that rape was much more prevalent and much more officially tolerated in the context of the Civil War, than has ever been officially acknowledged. But even setting aside all that just for the sake of argument, though I personally think there's almost certainly truth to those charges, it's still a terrible thing that was being inflicted upon the overall population. Black and white, both, by the way. You can't destroy or confiscate all the food of an entire region without also harming the physical welfare of the slaves in the area that you're supposedly coming to save. Because... After all, they live there too. And again, Sherman mostly discouraged liberated slaves from hanging around his army as much as he could, even though, like I said, many tried to follow the army, and many, though of course we don't have exact stats on this, suffered and even died of things like malnutrition. This is how one female resident of Georgia described how things looked for those in the wake of Sherman's march. Quote, we struck the burnt country, as it is well named by the natives, and then I could better understand the wrath and desperation of those poor people. I almost felt as if I should like to hang a Yankee myself. The fields were trampled down, and the road was lined with the carcasses of horses, 
hogs, and cattle that the invaders, unable either to consume or to carry away with them, had wantonly shot down to starve out the people and prevent them from making their crops. The stench in some places was unbearable. The dwellings that were standing all showed signs of pillage, and on every plantation we saw the charred remains of the gin house and packing screw, while here and there lone chimney stacks, Sherman sentinels, told of homes laid in ashes. I saw no grain of any sort except little patches they had spilled when feeding their horses, in which there was not even a chicken left in the country to eat. End quote. Sherman's army, cut off from all reinforcement and supply other than what they could confiscate, should have been vulnerable, particularly to irregular warfare, and yet they were basically able to operate with near impunity. The few instances where Confederates, either regular soldiers or irregular fighters, tried to cause trouble for Sherman's forces were ineffective and easily dealt with. And these simply provided further excuses for ever harsher measures. Jeffrey Hummel describes the faults with the Confederacy's overall war strategy that had created the situation. Quote, This is where the Confederacy's Napoleonic strategy revealed its ultimate inadequacy. Such a large-scale federal campaign through Georgia should have been logistically tenuous. If lavish losses from offensive assaults had not denuded the southern countryside of military-age males, irregular rebel warfare could have turned Sherman's march into the same kind of military debacle that British General John Burgoyne suffered during the American Revolution, when he invaded the colonies from Canada and was then forced to surrender after the battles of Saratoga. Even without significant military opposition, federal troops were starting to feel supply strains before they reached the Atlantic coast in December of 1864 and made contact with Union warships. End quote. On December 10, 1864, Sherman's forces reached the outskirts of the city of Savannah. Sherman wrote to Confederate General William Hardy, who was commanding the pitifully outnumbered Confederate force that was defending the city, and basically told Hardy that if he resisted Sherman's taking of the city, the gloves would be fully off, saying that he'd employ, quote, the harshest measures, and shall make little effort to restrain my army, end quote. So it's a classic Mongols move. You tell your opponent, give up the city without a fight, because if you put up any resistance, then when I do take the city, you're going to really pay for it. We're going to do whatever we want. On December 20th, Hardy, wisely, I think, given the numerical situation, decided to pull his forces out of the city and give it up without a fight. However, he would not surrender. Instead, his army would sneak away. They built a makeshift pontoon bridge across the Savannah River and left. The next morning, the mayor and other leaders of the city of Savannah rode out to parley with Sherman, and they said they would offer no resistance at all, as long as Sherman promised to leave the city intact. Sherman accepted the offer, and his forces began occupying the city that day. And it was this deal that is why, if you go visit Savannah now, it still has so many antebellum and even colonial structures and buildings still intact. Once in Savannah, Sherman issued Special Field Order Number 15, which provided 40-acre plots of confiscated land 
within 30 miles of the coast for the free slaves of southeastern Georgia. This is the origin of the old 40 acres and a mule cliché, and it seems to have been much more of a pragmatic move than a noble humanitarian one on Sherman's part, because what really was driving this decision was that Sherman didn't want to have to try to feed and take care of the thousands of contrabands that were in the area. Although, of course, the small percentage of slaves who actually did get some of this land, they no doubt appreciated the order regardless of its primary motivations. Sherman cabled Lincoln, saying, quote, I beg to present you as a Christmas gift, the city of Savannah, with 150 guns and plenty of ammunition, also about 25,000 bales of cotton, end quote. Lincoln responded with a letter that said, quote, When you were leaving Atlanta for the Atlantic coast, I was anxious, if not fearful. But feeling that you were the better judge and remembering nothing risked, nothing gained, I did not interfere. Now, the undertaking being a success, the honor is all yours. In showing to the world that your army could be divided, putting the stronger part to an important new service, and yet leaving enough to vanquish the old opposing force of the whole, Hood's army, it brings those who sat in darkness to see a great light. End quote. Historian Harry Stout points out that the phrase, bringing those who sat in darkness to see a great light, is an example of the increasing biblical sounding apocalypticism of Lincoln's language in the last months of the war, which of course would also be the last months of his life. Soon, Sherman would turn his army north to South Carolina the first state to secede from the Union. Sherman wrote, quote, The whole army is burning with an insatiable desire to wreak vengeance upon South Carolina. I almost tremble at her fate. End quote. To me, and to Confederate General Joseph Johnston back at the time, all of this calls to mind the words of the ancient Scottish leader Calgacus, speaking to his people about why they should resist Roman rule, as reported by the Roman historian Tacitus. The famous quote, To ravage, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles, they call empire. And where they make a wasteland, they call it peace. End quote. Of course, I would amend the statement slightly by putting it this way. Where Team America makes a wasteland, they call it freedom. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on.
Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.